Welcome back to GLF Live, the official podcast of the Global Landscapes Forum. Let's face it, climate change is terrifying. Whether it's heat waves or hurricanes, fires or floods, there isn't a single corner of the world that hasn't been touched by the endless ring of disasters we've unleashed upon ourselves. And it's especially disturbing for young people who are inheriting a fate that's increasingly out of their hands. A recent study across 10 countries found that 60% of young people are either very worried or extremely worried about how the climate crisis is going to impact their lives in the future. Medical professionals call these feelings eco-anxiety. Of course, it's not just young people who experience it. When you read the news or get an electricity bill, perhaps you also share these emotions of sadness, fear, worry, and anger. In today's episode, conservation psychologist Susan Clayton is going to walk us through this new mental health crisis and give us some tips on how to handle it. Hi everyone, and welcome to today's GLF Live. I'm Gabrielle Lipton, the editor of Landscape News for the Global Landscapes Forum. And today we're going to discuss a bit of an emotional topic, but one that probably everyone here listening has experienced to either a small or large degree, and that is eco-anxiety. And I'd like to start by saying that this is a term that should not be taken lightly. As we'll dive into more in this discussion, eco-anxiety is not yet a medical diagnosis, but it is rapidly escalating as a mental health issue around the world, particularly for young people and for mothers, causing severe feelings of sadness, anger, and stress triggered by climate change-related events and this affects the overall health of individuals. So today we have the privilege of hearing from one of the foremost psychologists studying eco-anxiety, Dr. Susan Clayton, who is a professor of psychology at the College of Worcester in Ohio, and she's currently tuning in from Paris. She's published numerous surveys and studies that have helped establish eco-anxiety in the public lexicon, And she's also a lead author on the forthcoming sixth assessment report of the IPCC. So perhaps she's among the most well-positioned individuals at the intersection of climate and psychological sciences. I'd like to start with a very basic question, which is about the wording that we use around eco-anxiety. It's also called climate change distress, climate anxiety, ecological grief. There are a lot of phrases being thrown around to describe the negative feelings that climate change is triggering in more and more people. Um, Do you have a preference around any of this terminology and the language that we use? Uh, Hi, Gabrielle. Thanks for uh, focusing on this topic. I think the range of terms that we're seeing is a reflection of the range of emotions people are experiencing. So um, there are different ways in which we're responding emotionally to the climate crisis. I tend to use the term climate anxiety because uh, I'm principally focused on climate change, but all of the terms I think are valid and reasonable ones. And some people's feeling may be predominantly anxiety, but others may be, um, maybe it's more grief, maybe it's more anger in some cases. Uh, So I want everybody to feel that they can choose the term that best describes their experience. And could you tell us a bit about your experience and your journey choosing to study this topic? What drove you to begin publishing and researching on climate anxiety? Sure, um, and it's it's been kind of one of those things that I didn't anticipate the directions I was going to go in when I started. Um, I'm actually, I'm trained as a social psychologist, not a clinical psychologist. So I 
primarily focus on social interactions. And as somebody who's interested in environmental issues very much, I started to think about basically how people talk to each other about climate change or, or don't talk to each other about it, how it might be affecting social interactions and kind of social well-being. And that began to edge into an awareness of mental health impacts, which uh, I really started to look at almost 15 years ago. And the more I, I researched that, the more I realized that this was a phenomenon that was happening and that was probably growing. And we needed to, we needed to do more to understand it and just to name it because if we don't have a name for it, it, it it's hard for it to have uh, any political power or meaning for people. Absolutely, it is important to attach some terminology so everyone's on the same page and has a similar starting point for how we describe these feelings. Um, you said that this started about 14, 15 years ago for you. How has the scientific community in your field um, joined forces and gathered around this topic? Is it still niche within the psychological field of sciences or is it growing and gaining traction? I would say both of those things are true and it's actually been very um, validating and rewarding to see the psychological community begin to recognize that they have an important role to play in responding to climate change and other environmental challenges. Um, back in uh, around the turn of the, the 21st century, I was asking psychologists essentially what did they think about environmental issues and the role of psychology. And some of them had very interesting um, responses. They said, yes, we should be paying more attention. But some of them said, this means nothing. Why, why would psychology have anything to do with environmental issues? That's silly. So um, we were really starting from a fairly low level there. And uh, then within the, the first decade of the century, the American Psychological Association put together a task force to examine psychology and climate change. Um, that there's a, a second iteration of that task force is currently working and just there's really been an explosion of interest and awareness, not just by individual psychologists, but by psychological organizations. However, there's still a lot of people who are, are very unfamiliar with the idea that they're connected. Mm -hmm. I would like to uh, get back to where the science is going on this in just a moment. Um, perhaps you can touch on um, some topics related to young people. In the years when you were first beginning to look into this topic, uh, you said that you were noticing this in people. You were noticing climate anxiety start to be a phenomenon, I think was the term that you used. Was there a certain demographic that you were witnessing this in? Or what experiences did you have um, with people uh, in the social sector uh, that made you turn your attention to this? Yeah, it wasn't really that I was personally encountering young people. And of course, young people often have less access to the media and they're a little bit harder to, um, to do research on because you have to worry about issues of, of consent and uh, parental uh, approval and so on. So it really was, what did I happen to hear about? And mostly in the media, um, there would be reports of people describing themselves as having climate anxiety, but it tended to be adults. So uh, it wasn't until a few years passed that I started to hear more buzz about, yes, children are very worried. And I think um, 
some specific events around the world may have drawn, well, certainly uh, the rise of youth activism, uh, I think has been important. Why, why, are, why are these youth so up in arms? Uh, because they're emotionally responding to the, the, the climate crisis, but also um, events around the world, like I think the Australian wildfires of a few years ago, um, the, the response of children who lived in Australia, who of course were, were very aware of the smoke and they were you know, terrible images of, of uh, animals that couldn't escape and so on. So I think that also drew our attention to the ways in which children and young people were responding. Mm -hmm. And seeing this, seeing young people respond, seeing youth activists um, yeah, take to the streets around this and experience things like smoke from a young age, as a social, social psychologist, what alarm bells did that sound for you in your mind, seeing such young people start to have these um, quite mature emotions founded actually in reality? Well, uh, this may be obvious, but experiences children have can sort of permanently alter the trajectory of their lives in a way that may be more true for adult uh, than for adults because young people are still forming their sense of who they are and, and what their capabilities are. So uh, events that may traumatize them or events that um, you know, may lead them to question some basic assumptions about the future, impair their sense of security, those can have long-term impacts. So that was really my, uh, my concern. It's, uh, of course, it's sad when adults are affected and traumatized and emotionally overwrought or more appropriately wrought. But um, for children, you just have a sense that it's affecting the entire trajectory of their lives in a different way. Yeah, it's hard to hear that. Um, I'd like to switch quickly back to the science that's happening around this, as you mentioned before. And you just published a major survey about the percentages of youth that are feeling worried, very worried, extremely worried about um, climate change. Um, yeah, over 60% or about 60%, I think you found, um, we're feeling very or extremely worried, which is a very high percentage across, I believe, 10 countries. How, what other research are scientists in your field doing? Uh, yours was a survey. You've done um, a bunch of research on the literature and the term that we use to describe these feelings. But you said that more and more psychologists are gathering around this topic. Uh, what sorts of research is being done around this? Yeah, it really is very new as, um, of course, it, uh, when you start realizing this is something that deserves study, it can take a few years to develop your methods and, and get your data and so on. So um, people are, uh, I want to say, in, in some ways, rushing to find out more about um, what is the evidence for climate anxiety? What does that look like? And how does it relate to uh, markers of mental health, but also um, people are very interested, obviously, in, in saying, well, how can, how can an emotional response to climate change be, be coped with, be dealt with in a way that is not, uh, you know, is, is not debilitating for anyone, but especially for the young people. So what are good ways for people to cope with their emotional responses to climate change? And what are some of those ways? Well, a, a big debate right now, um, has to do with is it is it important to take action or not? And uh, like like so many things about people, it's very complicated. 
uh, I would say in general, it is very useful to take action. And one reason is that um, one, of the, uh, one of the negative aspects of climate anxiety is your feeling of helplessness and powerlessness and um, being just a passive victim to these unstoppable forces. So starting to take action can at least make you feel that you aren't, you aren't passive, you're an agent, you have, you have some control over what's going on. And of course, those, um, those experiences of taking action, whether that be um, trying to make your own home more sustainable or working with a, a school group or a community group or, or being politically active, um, if you actually have an impact, that's, that's extremely validating. And beyond just making people feel powerful, it can also um, give their life a sense of meaning and purpose. And that's something that's very valuable to all of us. And, um, I think that's something that people think is an important part of existence to have a sense of meaning in your life. The reason I hesitate about that idea of, of um, taking action is that I think the last thing we wanna do is to make people who are feeling anxious also feel guilty for not doing enough. And that's something that also happens. So to take action, but, but not to assume kind of sole responsibility for responding to and managing the climate crisis is also very important. And what about taking action in terms of seeking help, seeking support? How does that manifest in a time when um, this isn't yet a medical diagnosis and it's still growing in the public discourse as an, a, a real idea? Um, so what about yeah, seeking help for people who are experiencing this extreme distress? Absolutely. And I think uh, I'm glad you said that because people should focus not just on, they should recognize that it's legitimate, not just to focus on the climate crisis, but on protecting their own health. And that certainly includes mental health. So it's not self-indulgent to um, try and cope with these somewhat overwhelming emotions. And it, that may include things like getting tips on how to cope with anxiety, um, how to step back and de-stress, how to be mindful, um, deep breathing techniques, things like that. So. Absolutely. I, I would encourage people who are feeling kind of overwhelmed by their emotions to, to, to look for help. Now, your question raises um, the problem of, well, this is not a diagnosis. This is not um, a specific you know, recognized condition. How can you make sure your therapist is um, sympathetic? In other words, that they, that they understand the problem and are not going to be dismissive. And I would like to think that very few therapists would dismiss the problem, but some of them certainly are less informed than others. So it is a good idea. Um, I think there's increasing numbers of therapists who will talk about uh, themselves as actively engaged with um, therapy for eco-anxiety or as utilizing something you might call eco-therapy. So it is worth, um, I think, looking for a therapist who is going to recognize the scope of the problem as opposed to saying, gee, I never really thought about it before. So seeking out a practitioner who mm -hmm. has some specialty in this topic. Um, I, you're also, you're a lead author on the IPCC report um, that's forthcoming, and that is, there will be a huge report. Past IPCC reports have made a huge splash in the climate community and just in the general public giving extreme warnings about where we stand in the climate crisis. Uh, what brought you into that authorship process and what is your role within it? Yeah, let me give a little background for um, the, 
the listeners who may not be aware of this, that the IPCC report, um, it is very impactful. It's made, it, you know, it includes uh, authors from around the world and very deliberately not just um, privileging Western authors who often you know, are more likely to be featured. So um, very international, very much mindful about including North and South, very mindful about including um, uh, reference to indigenous knowledge, but also very validated. So they, they're not expressing their opinions, they're reporting the results of peer reviewed research. And um, so it, it's a very solid report. And as you can imagine, it takes forever to produce um, the other thing is it includes three components. Uh, the first, which was actually released, I think a few weeks ago, is about the physical science basis. So what evidence do we have that climate change is happening and what predictions can we make about what that will look like in terms of kind of physical processes and meteorological processes. Uh, the second part, which I'm involved in, is looking at the impacts on, on people. And then the third part, we'll start to talk about mitigation and what can we do to reduce the extent of climate change. So um, previous IPCC reports have made only very brief reference to mental health, but it, it was a deliberate choice that or recognition that it needed to be included more in the in the current version, which should be released uh, next spring after it's been vetted by governments. And so uh, there are more psychologists involved and essentially we're trying to when we talk about human impacts, recognize the, the breadth of human impacts. It's not just about um, physical health and it's not just about you know, economic well-being or patterns of habitation, but it's also including mental health and um, a broad definition of well-being. And you're mentioning these other forms of health, physical health, it can certainly affect financial health, all sorts of health, but in terms of mental health in particular, how does that trickle down into other aspects of individuals' lives and then broadening out from that as more and more individuals are impacted negatively by these feelings? How does that affect a society? And yes, how does this mental health issue have large scale effects? Yeah, I think as um, not just as a single society, but as a global society, we do tend to be dismissive about mental health issues as if you know people who have mental health problems just need to pull themselves together and you know if they're feeling sad well that's kind of their problem i think that we have an increasing recognition that um, first that mental health is not just something that happens to individuals but it's a result of uh, at least in part of social circumstances um, and then also that it does impair other aspects of functioning so that's really one of the definitional aspects of when something becomes a mental health issue is when it starts to interfere with your ability to live your life. Can you no longer work as productively? Can you no longer kind of be a, a well-functioning family member or a, 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 can you no longer enjoy socializing with your friends? So when your mental health is impaired, it definitely can um, impair your economic productivity. And certainly there's it's really almost impossible to disentangle physical health and mental health because they they very much influence each other. And at some level, you know, like a sleep problem, sleeping problems, is that a mental health problem? Is that a physical health problem? It's really both. Um, mental health problems can impair the functioning of your immune system, so make you more uh, susceptible to physical diseases. So, um, so yeah, so mental health can have a uh, 
a huge impact on the way we function as a society. I mean, just imagine a society in which everybody is depressed. It's not going to be a very you know, high functioning society. Going back to something we discussed earlier, but I'd like to dig into a bit deeper is the fact that this is not yet a medical diagnosis, uh, which considering it's still quite new in the public discourse um, and in the scientific discourse as well, I guess is not a surprise, but what is the pathway to getting it to be a medical diagnosis? And what are the benefits of getting it registered in some of the major um, literature, the resources, the guidebooks, um, having it registered there as a medical diagnosis? Well, I would say I'm not, it's not necessarily clear that it should be registered as a separate diagnosis. And I say that for two reasons. One is that um, having it be a diagnosis risks making it seem like a problem of the individual that needs to be cured rather than a problem of the society that needs to be addressed. So I like to think that um, climate anxiety can be a, a signal to societies and to, to governments that we need to be doing something about this. Um, the other aspect is, is there something different um, from a psychological point of view about climate anxiety than about other sources of anxiety? And um, maybe there are, and that's what we will you know, hopefully discover more about. Uh, and if there are different, if there are important differences, um, then maybe it should be a separate diagnosis, but otherwise it could be just treated. People get anxious about a lot of things and they can seek help for their anxiety. So I think for now, that's a reasonable way to go. Okay, thank you for making that distinction. And then in terms of how this continues to be escalated as an issue, there have been talks about it becoming an issue of human rights at a national or international level. Is there any precedent for how government should address a mental health crisis like this? Or what sort of political action would you like to see taken? Yeah, I, I'm not a legal scholar, but my sense is there probably is not a precedent. And one reason for that is what I was just saying, that people have tended to not take mental health very seriously and certainly not considered it something that needs to be addressed at a at a societal level for the most part. So um, the idea of societies acting to protect mental health, my guess is, is, is fairly new, but it would be a, a great thing. And I, you know, we do have increasing awareness. I think um, in some ways uh, governments have more recognition of um, the ways in which they can protect the well-being of their citizens. So, um, and we have an increased sense of, of what people, of human rights, essentially, that we have the right not just to kind of be left alone, but the right to schooling and the right maybe to some level of medical care and the right to some level of um, you know, access to food and water. And so expanding that to say, yes, and we have, a, we have the right to mental health and we have the right to healthy environments. Uh, you know, that's certainly something that seems to be happening around the world. So I hope that it's a powerful message that, um, that governments will think about responding to um, this idea that people have a right to a future. I mean, this is what it boils down to. Children, young people have a right to a future um, that is not, and current generations do not have the right to you know, live their life at the expense of the future of young people. Now, I, I don't want to be one of those people who says, you know, that humanity is going to be wiped out within two decades, because I don't think so. But um, on the path we're on, 
standards of living are going to be degraded uh, by climate change in order to maintain the standard of living of the current generations. And, and that just seems morally wrong. And even that very idea is triggering, especially as a young person, and you're thinking about starting a career, starting investing, and you just have, you don't feel sure-footed that there's going to be a safe foundation um, environmentally for you to do so. And so that imagined future can also be very triggering for these feelings. Exactly. We were talking about the effects of mental health. Um, if people feel that the future is, is frightening, and the study you were just referring to, we found, a, you know, three quarters of respondents said the future was frightening. That's going to affect the long-term decisions you make. You might be less likely to plan, to plan for the future, so you're not saving. Uh, you may be making decisions about whether or not to have children. You may not feel that it's worth it to put effort into a long-term career plan. Uh, so I hope that there aren't, you know, I, I, don't, I don't want young people to be feeling like that, but um, if you really feel pessimistic about the future, that's uh, a, a reasonable response. I'd like to turn our attention a bit to uh, what listeners are chiming in with. Um, we have a question, but also one of our listeners, Alexi, has posted a quote, which um, some of us might have heard before, but it's a powerful quote. And perhaps you could just respond to this from a psychological point of view. It's from Greta Thunberg. And I don't want you to be hopeful. I want you to panic. I want you to feel the fear I feel every day. And then I want you to act. Uh, could you just respond to that? It's a very powerful quote. And I think definitely the reason that Greta Thunberg has been so uh, influential is because of the clarity of her emotional response, you know, that, that she is, um, she's afraid and, and she's angry. And so it, it's not, it's a very strong emotion, a very empowering emotion. Um, as applied to other people more generally, um, panic is not usually a good response because panic tends to, when your emotions are too strong, it's hard to make good decisions. Um, the, there's a physiological influence of that emotional state and your, your thoughts may be less clear and you may have a, a harder time recognizing alternative possibilities or alternative points of view. So I think her call is important to listen to and um, an important challenge to all of us to recognize that their emotions are a, an important signal. Hey, something important is going on. Stop and pay attention. Stop and do something. But I don't think panic is a good daily state for anybody to exist in. Mm -hmm. It will have lasting impacts on your nervous system, I can imagine. I can, yes. Mm -hmm. uh, we have another question from our listener, Katya. Are you aware of any work on introducing this or other emotional education into schools and curriculums? Yeah, great question. I've actually been giving some thought to that. Um, there are uh, a lot of people, such as parents, such as teachers, are asking, well, what do we need? What should we be telling our children? Do we have to worry about scaring them at a very early age? Should we try and you know, tell them everything's okay? Or, or how can we prepare them uh, to deal with this crisis? Um, so I don't have specific examples in mind, but I know that there are people working on sort of developing curricula to help students 
grasp the reality. I would say uh, a couple of important principles. One is not to lie to children, um, but with very young children, it, there's something to be said for not giving them the whole truth. Um, it's like you don't say to a three-year-old, you know, mommy and daddy are going to die someday, uh, even though they are. You, you know, the three-year-olds should think their parents are going to live forever. Um, children need to feel secure and stable, and so we want to encourage them. But they are also, from a fairly young age, they're getting some messages about uh, environmental crises from their friends and their older siblings and the, you know, and the media. So to tell them, no, that's wrong, don't pay any attention to that, is going to give them the sense that they can't, whoever tells them not to pay attention is not a reliable source. So they'll lose their trust in that person. So giving them accurate information, but just in the right doses is very important. And then to give them, it's important for them too, to feel a sense of hope. Um, and hope doesn't mean blind optimism that, oh, things will work out. It means there is a possibility that things will work out. And we were talking about agency earlier, and even very young children can be given an opportunity to have some agency whether it be, you know, you can be responsible for going around and turning the lights off in, at home, you know, make sure we don't leave lights on, or, you know, you can be responsible for helping with the recycling. Um, and slightly older children could work with their school or work with their community or even, even start writing politicians. As, mm -hmm. as we know from uh, Ritima, you said, was already filing a lawsuit at age nine. Mm -hmm. I liked what you said about a possibility that things might work out. That's a bit bittersweet, but I suppose a realistic and um, tinged with hope approach to this. Exactly. I, I, I read that somewhere, and I'm afraid I don't remember who, whose quote it was, but that hope is not about thinking that things will be okay, but it's about maintaining the, the idea that there's a possibility that things will be okay. Keeping your feet on the ground as you hope as well. Mm -hmm. Also, in terms of current events, our listener Jules is asking, uh, will you or others be sharing the results of your survey findings at the COP? This could be very useful to focus minds. And I will broaden that question a bit to ask, what do you hope to see happen with um, climate anxiety and mental health at the COP? What discussions would you like to see had there in that setting? Yes, well, I, I don't have any formal roles there. I am, there's a, a side event on mental health and climate change that's been organized in, in uh, collaboration with the Glasgow City Council. So they'll, and that will be a completely virtual event. Um, so hopefully that will allow the, the topic to be prioritized. Um, several things that uh, have happened this fall or are happening, including the, the study about young people that you described earlier. We really had a goal of, of releasing those into the public domain before COPS so that it can become part of the discussion. And um, we are very happy that the UN Secretary General made reference to the findings of that study. So it has um, entered political discussion, whether it actually makes a difference, who knows. But again, I think the, the reasons that climate anxiety is so important is that um, it can affect all of us. So, you know, people who there are, there are countries that are experiencing wildfires and there are countries that aren't. There are countries that are experiencing um, uh, you know, droughts and, and countries that aren't or storms, but all of us can experience this climate anxiety. So um, being aware of it hopefully will, will be an additional source of motivation for, 
for, for governments and, and NGOs to come up with some specific plans. Uh, and, and that's, you know, in a very broad sense, what I really hope for from COP26 is that I'm, I'm not a policy expert. I can't say what policies will necessarily be the best to address the problem, but just a sense that people are trying to address the problem. They are making policy proposals that have at least a plausible chance of being effective. I think that would um, be very good for mental health, for people to see that, that governments were taking action. I think that links well to what you were saying about the possibility of hope. <laughs> Um, and if there's some possibility that governments are taking action, then that definitely um, can ignite a sense of change, possible change. Um, I know we've been speaking for quite a while, so I'd like to close out here. It's um, unfortunate that Ridma hasn't been able to join, um, but we've had a wonderful audience and some great discussions happening in the chat as well. So I think it's been a very fruitful conversation. And I'm wondering if we could end, um, Susan, with you uh, just giving a few messages to our wonderful audience who's joined us today, which I believe is of all ages, from young people to young professionals to adults and parents. Um, I don't know if you have targeted messages for the different demographics or if there are some main messages you'd like to convey, but um, when people are wrapping their heads around these feelings and the future of climate change and where our environment is headed, what would you like to tell them? I think the first thing I would like to say is, is thank you and congratulations because everybody who's who's been listening today is facing up to this challenge and um, trying to learn about it and trying to do what they can rather than hiding their head in the sand and you know definitely deserve congratulations for that and and thanks from all of us. Um, the second message is just to reiterate what I said before: don't feel that the responsibility lies on your shoulders alone as an individual. You know, no one person caused climate change and no one person is going to uh, fix it. But it's a, it's astonishing how much power, nevertheless, each of us has, not just through our own individual actions, but through our, our voices, which are able to influence so many other people. And then the third thing is, I, I, here's one of the things that keeps me going. I think that we should be aiming not just to avoid the worst of the problem. I think we should think of this as an opportunity to reimagine society in a way that is better than, um, than it was 10 years ago. I think most of us can recognize that there's a whole, whole lot of other problems in the world besides climate change. There's you know, vast levels of inequality, there's disease, um, there's, you know, there's prejudice. And there's, uh, and people are leading lives, many people are leading lives that do not provide them with a source of, um, uh, of, of meaning or joy. Uh, so reimagining some of the basic ways in which we go about living um, can help to address climate change, but can also address some of these other problems. And so I, I, I'm optimistic that in a few decades, society will actually be better. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you for ending on that positive message. I think that's a nice one to carry through us through our day and our week and the COP. And um, thank you so much for joining us. It was such a privilege to hear from you. And we will look forward to your forthcoming research and the forthcoming IPCC report um, to see how this is all woven in. Um, it's nice to know that the mental health sector is heading in this direction and taking this seriously. So, uh, so thank you everyone. And thank you, Dr. Clayton. And we'll see you next time on GLF Live.
Join us again next week as we launch a mini-series featuring young activists and campaigners from around the world to learn how they're taking the climate crisis into their own hands. Subscribe to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, or Stitcher, and reach out to us on social media with the hashtag GLFLive. And for everything you need to know about landscapes, ecosystems, and climate change, check out our website at globallandscapesforum.org. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you on the next one.